It's a Monday mailbag. We've got your questions, including, do the Texas Rangers trade Justin Foscue? Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked on MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, award-winning baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. We're proudly part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. And today's episode is made possible by our friends at FanDuel. Make every moment more, because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 if your team wins. Visit Fando.com slash locked on to get started. As we do every single Monday, this is a mailbag episode. All of these questions come from listeners of the show. If you have a question for us, tons of ways to get them to us. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball, shows on Twitter at Locked On Farm, all the rest of the stuff in the episode description, in the show notes. But let's get into it. I had a question Are the Texas Rangers going to trade infielder Justin Foscue? And this is a really, this one's tough, okay? Because this comes down to more than just baseball. All right, let's talk about Justin Foscue, who he is as a player, and his path to playing time, and then some of the off-field issues that may result in Justin Foscue getting traded. 2020 first rounder out of Mississippi State. Obviously, you missed time in 2020. You lost that season, and so a guy you took off a little bit less evaluation. One of those picks, to me, was a pretty safe pick, right? You take a college performer who you've seen in the SEC, and so for the, and for the most part, he's rewarded you with the faith. Uh, he was in the Arizona Fall League in 2021, trying to catch him up on at-bats because there was no 2020 season. 2022, the entire season in AA Frisco. 2023, the entire season in AAA Round Rock. 122 games for Justin Foscue. 266, 394, 468, 18 home runs, 53 extra base hits, 85 walks to 70 strikeouts, and 14 to 21 on stolen bases. He's an infielder. He is just clearing things up. He is not a shortstop. He has not played shortstop since high school. He is now he can play anywhere on the diamond. He's played first, he's played second, he's played third. He's mostly played second last year in Round Rock. 70 games at second, 35 at third, 9 at first, and 9 as a DH. Mostly second base. He's not here for defense. And by that, Justin Foscue is going to be fine defensively. Something below average. He's not going to be a differentiator on defense. And the issue is obviously in the Texas Rangers system, you've had... A glut of middle infield prospects who have been stuck because you signed Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon to a combined half a billion dollars in contracts. And spoiler alert, it's worked out. You won the World Series. You you have to figure out one play time for Justin Foscue, right? What position does he play? Josh Young is your third baseman. You have Marcus Simeon at second. Marcus Simeon was one of four players to play all 162 games. We've already established Justin Foskey is not a shortstop. If Corey Seager misses time, you can't slip him in there. And then you have Nate Lowe at first base. Your infield is covered. From an 
offensive perspective, Justin Foscue is a good player to have on your team, right? When you look at the stats, obviously, again, 266 with a 394 on base, 468 slug, 53 extra base hits in 122 games. When you dig into some of the numbers uh, and you look at uh, the swing decisions, the power that he showed, it all shows a guy that can contribute at the major league level, right? Average exit velocity, 87.3, 90th percentile exit velocity of 103.1. You'll remember we said the everydayers know this. You're looking for around 101 or better on that 90th percentile exit below. So he's got the power to be at least an average power performer at the major league level. When you look at chase rates and things like that, uh, chase rate 24.5% for 2023. And side note, Baseball America had this as 22%. I don't know how my numbers are different from their numbers. I used uh, the MLB StatCast for AAA. I don't know if they have an internal thing that's slightly different or if they get their data from a team that's adjusted it. But we had differences. Again, they had 22%. I had 24.5%. But chase rate of 24.5%, which is obviously not bad. Contact rate, 84%. That's not zone contact rate. That's total contact rate. So he's not, even when you do get him to expand the zone, he still has good enough hands and good enough barrel control to make contact with the ball. So you like the contact rate, the zone contact, 93.1%. You can see he's a good hitter, obviously. The walk number being better than the strikeout number, again, 85 walks to 70 strikeouts for Justin Foscue. The zone contact of 93%. The chase rate being below 25%, able to contribute offensively and doing doing pretty well. It's I feel like a lot of the power is still a, a pull power profile. He's not necessarily barreling balls to all fields. It's he's more pulling it to get to the power, but it's fine. I think still think it's going to be average at the major league level. It'll be a 50 grade and. In the third segment, we do have a breakdown of how the 20 to 80 scouting scale reflects in a batting average or a home run production at the major league level. That's in the third segment. Somebody asked for that last week, so I've got that for you. I did notice last year watching some of Frisco, it felt like you could get him with fastballs up in the zone. I don't know how much of that was the automated balls and strikes in AAA where they adjusted the top of the zone to... uh, better change how fastballs in the top of the zone were called and how much of that is an actual weakness of his. So kind of a caveat there because of rule changes, I'm not 100% certain, but it felt like you could get him with fastballs up in the zone and you could get him with breaking and off-speed stuff on the the outer third, especially something that, fell, that, came, that started as a strike and ended as a ball. Little bit of weaknesses, every player has those but you feel good. The reason why you might be looking at a trade is I mentioned he's blocked, but also you're dealing with the whole badly sports situation, right? The TV deals and the money associated with that. If you look at the rotation now, you have a starting five, Nathan Eovaldi, Max Scherzer, John Gray, Dane Dunning, Andrew Heaney. Jordan Montgomery's a free agent. Jacob DeGrom is out with Tommy John surgery. You're probably not going to have him for the entirety of 2024 because he had the surgery in June. But it's a scenario where there's financial concerns that may prevent them from being too aggressive in free agency to add a starter. 
combined with the fact that is an old rotation. Uh, the only member of that rotation under the age of 30 is Dane Dunning. He's 29. Obviously, Max Scherzer's 39. And we've seen the issues he's had in the past with fatigue, with, I think it was like an oblique injury, things like that. So because Justin Foscue is blocked, and because he is the final wave of these, of this group of prospects, right? You already have Josh Smith up. He played plenty of shortstop for you. You already have Ezekiel Duran up. He's played infield and outfield. He's been a utility guy for you. You're looking at, you called up Evan Carter at the end of the year. Wyatt Langford is right there waiting to debut. It's a situation where Justin Foscue feels like he might be redundant at the major league level. You obviously have the ability to bring him up as a utility guy, let him play your non-shortstop positions. Again, Josh Smith can do that and play shortstop, but he also batted 185 with one home run last year, so it's entirely possible you want a better offensive performer. And then then the question becomes, Ezekiel Duran or Justin Foscue, you have to figure that out. So I could see Justin Foscue being traded. And if obviously, if you make that trade, he's the centerpiece as you try to get a starter. You're looking for a team that needs an infield performer. He's not going to be great at any outfield position, right? Not going to be great at second or third or even first. But he's going to hit enough to be able to at least hold his own and stick in a lineup. There's always the possibility you can find a better defender to replace him. But he does become an attractive trade piece if you're trying to make a deal. So I'm curious to see what happens. I think that's the big unknown this offseason with the Texas Rangers is do they mitigate the money concerns by making a deal using Justin Foscue or Leody Tavares as the centerpiece? And the Leody Tavares thing is obviously Evan Carter's a center fielder and Wyatt Langford's a left fielder. That makes Leody Tavares a little bit redundant if you're counting on Evan Carter to be your starter with Ezekiel Duran as a backup if something happens to Carter. Go listen to Locked on Rangers. Bryce Patrick is fantastic. He's talked all about the money issue with the Rangers as well as some of the prospect stuff. Go listen to Bryce. He's awesome. In just a minute, we're going to talk about a couple second basemen that missed our best second base prospects in baseball list last week and discuss why. We'll do that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. You can score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook, because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 if your team wins. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time to get in on the action. The app is incredibly easy to use, and there is a wide range of betting options, spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. Visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to kick off the NFL season with FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. Okay, so we put out our top second base prospects in baseball show last week, and the most commonly asked about guys that were not part of that show was Connor Norby of the Baltimore Orioles and Tamar Johnson of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I want to talk about Tamar Johnson real quick. If we have time, we'll get to Norby. But for Tamar Johnson, the reason why I don't think he's higher is because he's at a crossroads as a prospect. In the development curve for Tamar Johnson, he has to figure out what type of hitter he is going to be. So 
recap, 2022 first rounder, number four overall out of high school by the Pirates. Last year, divided between A-ball and high A. 105 games, 244, 422, 438. 18 home runs, 31 extra base hits, 101 walks to 120 strikeouts, and 10 to 12 stolen bases. If you remember the conversation for that draft class, there was talk about Tamar Johnson could be the best pure hitter in that class, a 70-grade hit tool. And if that is the case, it's really confusing to see him put up a 244 batting average over a full season in 2023, divided between Bradenton and Greensboro. And I think that it's because you're seeing some of the evolution in Tamar Johnson as a hitter. And like I said, he's at a crossroads of where he needs to go and decide what type of hitter he wants to be. So when you look at the underlying data, the power is good, right? Average exit velocity of 90.1, 90th percentile of 105.6. So he can generate plenty of power, which a little bit better than we thought he had. But his swing percentage was 37%. And for context, that was about 10% lower than average. Most players are somewhere near 50% swing percentage. Sometimes they're under, sometimes they're over, and it ends up being a useful barometer to figure out if you're a conservative or an aggressive hitter, right? If you're over 50%, it ends up being, you lean towards an aggressive description. If you're under 50, it's a conservative description. He was at 37%. And to go along with that, the chase rate was good, 20.6%. But the contact rate and the zone contact rate were both remarkably low. Contact rate, total contact, 68.3% for Tamar Johnson. So three out of 10 swings, he did not make contact. And in the zone, and I'll remind you, Justin Foscue's at 93.1%. In the zone, Tamar Johnson has a 76.8% contact percentage. And There's a lot of observations you can draw out of this. And then again, he's got to figure out what he's going to do going forward. You can look at he's swinging very little, like relatively to like relative to his peers in single A and high A. He's walking a ton, 101 walks. He's hitting for plenty of power. It looks like he's sacrificing batting average for power. 244 batting average. But 438 slug, again, he had 18 home runs and 31 extra base hits. It feels like at this point, Tamar Johnson can either be a plus hitter offensively or have plus power, hit for plus power. But he has to decide which one he wants to do because right now, what Tamar Johnson is doing is he's sacrificing batting average for power. But it's sustainable because he's taking advantage of poor command from 19-year-olds in single A. He walked 72 times in 75 games in Bradenton. And as he moves up in the minors, that walk percentage is going to come down because pitchers inherently will have better control. I would expect them to send him back to high A Greensboro to start 2024. And when he gets to double A, 
if everything is the same, where he's just hunting for power, it feels like he's going to suffer a significant dip in both batting average and on base percentage because he's not able to just rely on, I can just sit fastball in the zone and they'll either throw me a fastball in the zone I can crush or they'll walk me. That's not a sustainable approach in double A. And so he has to decide, do I want to focus on making quality contact and let my natural power gains give me some power production? Or do I want to focus on hitting home runs and take the trade-offs that come with that? Because right now, the approach is extreme passivity unless you make a mistake. And that's not... You can already see in the strikeout numbers, 120 strikeouts in 105 games. It's already not sustainable from the perspective of He's get, he gets fooled by off-speed and breaking pitches in the zone because he thinks it's a mistake pitch, and it's not. When you get to double-A, something's going to have to change. And so that is the big question behind Tamar Johnson. Does he want to be a power hitter? Does he want to be a contact hitter? I already have defensive questions. He had a 959 fielding percentage at second base in, in single-A and high-A. When you look at his physical ability, he's a stockier kind of guy, bigger, lower body. I don't think he's going to get more athletic. And so does he stay at second? Does he move to first? Does he end up being a DH by the time he makes MLB? And again, on this show, we just assume guys are going to make it. We don't talk about the most likely scenario is any given prospect doesn't make MLB. He has to decide do I want to be a, a contact-hitting second baseman? Do I want to be a power-hitting first base? What do I want to do? And he needs to figure that out in 2024 in Haye Greensboro before he goes to double-A. Because if he keeps this approach in double-A, it's not going to work. The other guy, Connor Norby, just real quick, 138 games in triple-A last year for Connor Norby. 290, 359, 483 slash line, 21 home runs, 64 extra base hits, 57 walks to 137 strikeouts and 10 to 14 on stolen bases. I've got Connor Norby as right behind Tamar Johnson in the back half of the top 10 for second base. The issue here is he there's is no favors done to him by being in that organization because they have so many other good infield prospects. You can look at multiple different ways to configure that infield that don't include Connor Norby, right? You can look at Gunnar Henderson at short, Jordan Westberg at third, Jackson Holiday at second, Kobe Mayo at first. You can have Kobe Mayo at third, Gunnar at short. You can have Gunnar at third, Jackson Holiday. You can use lots of ways to organize that infield that does not include Connor Norby. And it feels like his ceiling, if Baltimore keeps him, I do think he's a good trade candidate. Uh, if Baltimore keeps him, is a super utility guy that rotates in at second, at third, at first, gives everybody a day off. He you know, gets three or four games in a week. He plays one game a week in the outfield in AAA. He, he rotates through, gives everybody a day off, bats, gets four or five games a week. When you look at the underlying stats, 90th percentile exit below of 101.5. So I think his power is going to end up coming into average. The, the contact rate, 76.9%, the zone contact rate of 84.9%. 
Not as good as a guy like a Justin Foscue, not necessarily a pure hitter, but good enough to be a starter at the major league level, but not enough either offensively or defensively to push somebody off the position. And so that's the big issue there is in that organization, he's blocked. He wouldn't be blocked a bunch of other places, but he's blocked in Baltimore. So do they trade him or do they use him as a super utility kind of guy? In just a minute. Rapid fire, couple questions, my favorite prospects to watch, how the scouting scale works. We'll talk about all that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. Final segment of the Monday show of Locked on MLB Prospects. Reminder, if you have questions for us, tons of ways to get them to us. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Show's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. Everything else in the episode description, in the show notes. We're in Nashville right now for the winter meeting. So if you're here, drop us a line. Let me know you're here. We're going to have a little bit of free time around the different deals and press conferences and things like that happening. Rapid Fire had a question about Cade Cavalli of the Washington Nationals. Had Tommy John surgery. He's targeting June for the return from Tommy John. So I can't necessarily speak to how good he's going to be when he gets back. Obviously, Tommy John's a big issue. The guys that come back, we typically see they've had time to get their mechanics a little bit better. They've had time to build more strength in the lower body. Uh, Curious to see what he does. I was impressed with what he looked like before the injury, but it's just way too early to give any sort of projection as to what Cade Cavalli of the Washington Nationals might be when he comes back this summer, simply because it's major surgery. Tommy, It's hard to go off of Tommy John surgery and tell you what's going to happen. Uh, some of my favorite prospects, I was asked this question, and I group them into different groups, right? The first group is guys that I've covered that I know personally, and so I enjoy watching them and catching up with what they're doing, and then guys that I just enjoy watching because I like the way they play the game, or I'm in all of some of their tools, right? So guys that I've covered, the two that come to mind right away, Ryan Bliss of the Seattle Mariners and Blake Burkhalter of the Atlanta Braves. Ryan Bliss was the first ever prospect interview I ever did. Really exciting. We actually, when he was in college, we gave him the nickname of Short King. We've talked about him on this show. He was listed at 5'9". He's actually like 5'6". And as soon as the baseball reference page and everything updated to the true 5'6", he took off from a production standpoint like he was no longer denying himself. Ryan Bliss and then Blake Burkhalter of the Atlanta Braves was a closer at Auburn. That's where I met him. I know him personally. And actually, I was the one that broke the news that he had Tommy John surgery. I was talking to to him and somebody in his family when I was talking to somebody in his family when it happened. And they let me know he got hurt yesterday in the game. And we just found out this is what it is. And so we wrote the whole story up and waited for their okay. And then we released the news. And good kid should make it back this year. Really excited to see what he can do. Tim Hudson of the Braves, formerly the Braves was his pitching coach in college, taught him his cutter. Fun to watch that. Guys who are fun to watch for me, a couple different guys. One, he's young, but Colt Emerson, he was committed to Auburn for two or three years before he got drafted. So I followed him in high school. Obviously, it was tons of fun watching him in rookie ball and then watching him with the Modesto Nuts. I think he's a fantastic hitter and is going to rapidly move through a system, having a Gunnar Henderson time frame to potentially make the majors as a second baseman really high on his contact ability. And I think he has more power than he's gotten credit for. Tanner Murray of the Tampa Bay Rays is one of those dudes, like a baseball rat, one of those dirtbag kind of guys that can play any infield position, 
I spent a week calling games for the, Tampa, the Montgomery Biscuits, double-A affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays, and I watched him that week play second, play short, play third, look great doing it, had, was one of those guys when the game was over, he was dirty, head-to-toe every single game, but he was the emotional center of the team, the guys rallied around him, just fun like that. Victor Scott of the St. Louis Cardinals, watching him run is incredibly fun. Guys with those standout tools. I like watching that. I like watching that. I like watching Pete Crow Armstrong play defense. I think he's one of the best defenders in minor league baseball. So that's tons of fun to just to watch him and the, the jumps he gets and the routes he runs. That's always fun. And then had a question about the scouting scale, the 20 through 80 scouting scale and how that translates to production. So we talk about the hit tool and we talk about the power tool and Baseball America in their in their guide, their, their handbook, they've actually defined how the scouting tools translate or the scouting scores, scouting scale translates into statistical production. When you're looking at a hit tool, again, everything's 20 through 80 and 50 is average. And on the scouting scale for hit tools, a 50 tool is a batting average between 255 and 264. Now, granted, it doesn't always end up like this. You have everything from park factors to BABIP and all of that kind of stuff affect it. But this is the idea of where that should leave you at the major league level. As you go down the scouting scale, that gets worse. A 45, which is fringe to average, is a 245 to 254 batting average. A 40 is 235 to 244, a 30 is 215 to 234, and then a 20 score is a batting average below 215. As you get above 50, a 55 is 265 to 274. A 60, which is considered plus, it's one standard deviation above average. A 60 is 275 to 294. A 70 is 295 to 314. You see how rare these tools are getting when we get this high. And an 80 is a batting average of 315. Like this is one of the best hitters in baseball. Luis Arise is probably one of the only major leaguers who would have an 80 grade for his hit tool. When you look at power, similar thing. 50 is average. That comes out to 18 to 20 home runs, which... 18 to 20 is perfectly average for any given major leaguer. Uh, Standard deviations, again, as you go up, 55 is a half grade, 21 to 24 home runs. A 60 grade, so a plus power hitter, is 25 to 29 home runs. 30 home runs is surprisingly rare. Everybody thinks that's an achievable thing. 20 is more achievable than 30. 30 is surprisingly rare. So a 65, which I don't love doing half grades outside of 55 and 45, but a 65 is 30 to 34 home runs. 70 grade power is 35 to 44. And 80 grade power is 45 and up. So again, not many guys with an 80 grade power off the top of my head right now. I'm thinking Aaron Judge, Matt Olson. I think Shohei Otani could do that if he was healthy for a full year. It's a very small list that is 80 grade power. As you go below 50, you get to 45, 15 to 17 home runs. 40, solidly below average, is 10 to 14. 
30 grade is 5 to 9, 20, a 20. The lowest you can get on the scale is 0 to 4 home runs. So the whole idea here is trying to be able to quantify power and hit tool with statistics to try to give you an idea of what this guy could do at the major leagues. The other thing that makes this hard is so many places, I think MLB Pipeline does this a lot, is they give you the tool grade, but they don't necessarily specify that this is the future grade for this guy at the major league level. They just say, this is the grade. And the intention behind that is saying, this is the projection of what the tool is going to be at the major league level. But so many people will see those scouting reports and they'll see, okay, he's got a 60 hit grade. He batted, you know, 315 in double A. He should be a 70 or an 80. Well, when he gets to the majors, that's what the tool's projected to be, not where he is right now. And I think Fangraphs does a pretty good job at putting present value and future value on those tool grades. So keep that in mind if you're looking at a Baseball America scouting report, an MLB Pipeline scouting report, one of those that has tool grades broken out is those are the grades for when they reach the majors, not right now. Fantastic week this week. Again, we are at the winter meetings this week. Swing by and say hello if you're around. Let us know if you're here. In the meantime, if you have questions for us, show ideas, segment ideas, tons of ways to get them to us, all of our contact stuff in the episode description in the show notes. Until tomorrow's show, remember, it's always a great time to pay a minor leaguer. <laughs>